sometimes the reality is much too strong for the film. So I think that's what makes a good costume designer, that you really smell what feels realistic, what is too much. From Midori House in London, this is The Cinema Show on Monocle 24. I'm Ben Rylan. Coming up, we'll get a lesson in creating costumes with one of Europe's most sought-after designers, Monica Buttinger. Plus... I have always wanted to make a film about children, actually. And I always knew that if I did, there would be humor. There would be comedy, because simply watching children interact is, is funny. Sean Baker, one of the most talked about filmmakers of 2017, discusses the setting of his standout feature, The Florida Project. And rather than opening with credits in his preferred Windsor font, Alan gives us shots of skyscrapers and other buildings before cutting to an illuminated sign that reads Manhattan. In Manhattan, the city overshadows its occupants. Few films have mastered the art of architecture on screen quite like 1979's Manhattan. We'll take a tour with film critic Tim Grierson. That's all to come on The Cinema Show on Monocle 24. The term mise-en-scene was once a staple of many film schools, having been borrowed from a French theatrical expression which basically translates to the arrangement of props and scenery. Mise-en-scene eventually came to occupy a divisive place in cinematic language. To some, it's an indispensable term for describing the somewhat indescribable feeling a film might evoke. To others, it's a telltale sign of critical snobbery. Today's show explores two very different facets of filmmaking that play a role in the mise-en-scene, a film's setting and its wardrobe. First, we're off to Florida with one of this year's most fascinating filmmakers. Sean Baker, the much louder director of Tangerine, returned in 2017 with a new film exploring American communities that, following the recession, have moved into budget motels. The Florida Project depicts the life of a young mother and her six-year-old daughter who live in the rundown Magic Castle just outside Disney World. Monocle's Bill Luti sat down with Sean to find out about life along the famous highway in the so-called Sunshine State. It was my co-screenwriter who was sending me news articles about the situation going on down in Kissimmee, which is the city right next to Orlando, Florida. And Route 192 is the artery, the main highway that runs through both cities right to the parks. And I guess there was a considerable amount of attention brought to this area after the recession, and a lot of the budget motels that were once targeting the the same tourists that were going to the parks had now become places for for people to take refuge in, uh, people who are in a place in their lives where they can't secure permanent housing, and they're using budget motels as the last refuge before turning to the streets. And what's it like in those places? That's quite a bleak situation. It, yes. Yeah, they are. I mean, the, the, these businesses have been hit hard as well, so there's not a lot of money. They're a little run down. It's a blighted area. And, and you can imagine, you know, there, there are lots of issues happening. There's not just unemployment. It's, you know, there are some addiction issues happening in these motels. I would say there's uh, signs of domestic abuse, mental illness. There, there's a lot going on. But then there are also just families who have, you know, fallen by the wayside. You know, families who have been in the United States in 2016, 2017, have just found them 
themselves in a place where, again, not being able to uh, secure permanent housing, not being able to come up with that first and last month's rent plus security with the disappearing middle class that's going on in the U.S. right now. It's a, it's a major situation. It's not, just, it's not just Kissimmee and Orlando, obviously. It's a national problem. But there's that juxtaposition that I was made aware of, and it's that of children living in these budget motels outside of the place that we consider the most magical place on earth for children. And that's why we, we had our story take place there, because not for cynical irony, but for the, you know, irony in the way that we were telling audiences, look, if it can happen here, it can happen anywhere. And you you probably at one point in your life have visited Orlando. I mean, it is the tourist capital of the world, and you would never think it's happening right in the shadow of it. And you mentioned the children in this bleak environment. That's where the kind of joy comes from. Yeah, exactly. I have always wanted to make a film about children, actually. And I always knew that if I did, there would be humor. There would be comedy because simply watching children interact is is funny. (laughs) Um, And there's that joy of childhood. There's that age in which you're, you're still not perhaps entirely aware of what's happening around you and you're still using your sense of imagination and wonderment to make the best of things and I, I wanted to focus on that. I want to come back to the beginning where we you know you were talking about the shrinking middle class all the issues in America at the moment mm. obviously the political spotlight is looking towards America. Mm. Do you think it's a political film? I do but I think it's a, um, a nonpartisan issue. So therefore, it's something that I think, but it does at the same time, it is shedding light on this issue that I don't think many people are are aware of. And I think that it is political because I would love for audiences to get involved in any way they want. But when I say get involved, I mean, you know, calling Congress and saying no more budget cuts to, to HUD the Department of Housing and Urban Development, their their budgets directly affect people in need and, and the homeless. So it is political because we have an affordable housing crisis in the United States, and it's going to take politics to change that. That was Sean Baker talking to Monocle's Bill Lutie. The Florida Project has been released. Check local listing for details. Still to come, we will explore the architecture of New York as seen in Woody Allen's Manhattan. But first, a word from the news desk. While all eyes have been on a special election in Alabama this week, another deal has been brewing away that might yet alter the political and media landscape in the United States. A takeover agreement between 21st Century Fox and Disney could see the House of Mickey Mouse become one of the biggest entertainment companies in the world, reaching from the classic Disney canon and theme parks right across to Marvel Comics and even Star Wars. Meanwhile, at Fox, There's no telling what a big cash injection from the Disney coffers could mean for the network's staunchly conservative voice. Watch this space. Now, if all this politics has got you feeling overwhelmed, why not switch off with a film over at MUBI, the curated movie site of cult, classic, and award-winning films. You can sample a whole month of movies for free. Just head to MUBI.com slash monocle. That's M-U-B-I slash monocle. This is The Cinema Show. Stay tuned. Chapter One. He adored New York City, although to him it was a metaphor for the decay of contemporary culture. 
how hard it was to exist in a society desensitized by drugs, loud music, television, crime, garbage. Too angry. I don't want to be angry. Chapter one. He was as tough and romantic as the city he loved. Behind his black-rimmed glasses was the coiled sexual power of a jungle cat. Oh, I love this. New York was his town, and it always would be. When it comes to expressing a sense of place via the language of filmmaking, few directors manage it with quite the same finesse as Woody Allen. His most revered pictures give us a version of New York that both romanticize and parody the bustling metropolis. From adored comedies Annie Hall and Hannah and Her Sisters, to obscurities such as Another Woman and Interiors, Woody Allen's New York is a place we'd all love to visit, even if we do laugh and mock at the absurdities of his overly intellectual characters. And witty dialogue aside, that mythical city wouldn't be possible without Alan's unwavering appreciation for the architecture of New York and his hunger to understand it. Here's the film critic Tim Grierson with his take on what makes Woody Allen's Manhattan the last word of films of a city. New York City is often a core component in Woody Allen's movies, but never was it more prominently featured than in his 1979 film simply titled Manhattan. It's a cliché for directors to say that the setting of their movie is so important that it's practically one of the main characters, but in Manhattan that's actually accurate. This wistful comedy is in part about how Allen's protagonists are defined and hemmed in by the city where they live, and in a similar way, New York imposes its will on the film itself. Like many Woody Allen movies, Manhattan concerns a collection of sophisticated, lovelorn New Yorkers coping with their professional and personal issues through quips and philosophical musings. But if the style and tone of a Woody Allen film is easily recognizable, Manhattan nonetheless stands out among the nearly 50 features he's directed, and it's noticeable from the start. Rather than opening with credits in his preferred Windsor font, Allen gives us shots of skyscrapers and other buildings before cutting to an illuminated sign that reads Manhattan. We hear his neurotic character Isaac in the voiceover working on the opening to his book, comparing his fictional protagonist to the city he loves. But it's nearly four minutes until we see any of the film's characters. In Manhattan, the city overshadows its occupants. That sets the stage for a movie in which New York's architecture, restaurants, and museums are photographed with as much care as the actors. When we first meet some of Manhattan's central figures, Isaac, his girlfriend Tracy, and his married friends Yale and Emily, they're dining at Elaine's, a fashionable Upper East Side eatery. Filmed during normal business hours, the restaurant's unscripted, packed house energy adds authenticity and electricity to the character's conversation. But look closely during the scene, and you'll see that at one point, Alan pauses during a line reading, while his co-stars try not to crack up, as some oblivious patrons walk right through the middle of the shot. For a brief moment, New York's unbridled vitality actually hijacks the film. (music) 
Woody Allen and cinematographer Gordon Willis opted to shoot Manhattan in black and white with anamorphic lenses. In an interview, Allen once explained the rationale behind this decision, saying, We were talking about how they did all those war pictures with tanks and airplanes, and then we thought it would be very interesting to do an intimate picture like that. The effect is that the intimacy of Manhattan, a film that involves several romantic betrayals and a string of broken hearts, is mitigated by the grand widescreen compositions. When Isaac starts falling for Diane Keaton's hypercritical journalist Mary, it's while they're killing time in the Hayden Planetarium, walking around a moon exhibition in which it seems as if they're literally strolling across the lunar surface. It's striking to see this budding love affair against that cosmic backdrop, which gives their romance extra drama while at the same time diminishing its relative importance. Saturn is the sixth planet from the sun. How many of the satellites of Saturn can you name? There's Mimas, Titan, Dione, Hyperion, of course. Uh, Yeah, I can't name any of them, and and fortunately they never come up in conversation. (sighs) Facts. And then there's Manhattan's most iconic shot of Isaac and Mary at dawn, looking out at the Queensboro Bridge after spending all night walking and talking. In that moment, our lovebirds are in the bottom corner of the screen, shrouded in shadow, practically an afterthought. The characters don't even talk about their feelings for one another. They talk about New York. This is really a great city. I don't care what anybody says. It's just uh, really a knockout, you know? Isaac has reason to be so rapturous. New York has perhaps never looked better than it does in Manhattan. As Isaac works on his book, he has his fictional character say he adored New York City. He idolized it all out of proportion. Well, that's the way Allen and Willis film it. Every historic New York location, whether it's MoMA's Sculpture Garden or the Russian Tea Room, is brimming with life, or as Isaac puts it in his book, the hustle and bustle of the crowds and the traffic. But it's no accident that Alan lets his character's famous backgrounds dominate the frame. There's a sense that Isaac and his equally neurotic, screwed-up friends are merely temporary denizens of a thriving, towering metropolis that will be around long after they are forgotten. Isaac may be quite articulate about his passion for New York, but he has a much harder time fathoming his own heart, wavering between the underage Tracy and the unreliable Mary, who still hung up on Isaac's married best friend. In Manhattan, New York is a knockout, but it's also indifferent to its residents' petty anxieties and romantic foibles. The finale involves Isaac desperately trying to catch Tracy before she leaves for London. Unable to hail a cab, he's got to run all the way to her place. This is a beautiful city in black and white, but so massive and unruly, especially if you're trying to dash across it to find love. The critic for Screen Daily and Paste magazine, Tim Grierson. Now, when Judy Garland was fired from the 1967 film Valley of the Dolls, she was so fond of the costume that she'd worn during her screen test that she took it with her and wore it on her own tour. It was also a nice public display of revenge. Every so often, a film's costume design takes on a mythology all of its own. Consider the many, many designs of legend Edith Head, 
or the remarkable career of Helen Rose, who not only served as costume designer for films including The Bad and the Beautiful and I'll Cry Tomorrow in the 1950s, winning two Academy Awards, but she also stitched up two legendary wedding dresses, one for Elizabeth Taylor's marriage to Conrad Hilton and another for the union of Grace Kelly and Prince Rainier of Monaco. In today's film industry here in Europe, Monica Buttinger is one of the most sought-after costume designers. She took away the top prize in her field at this year's Diagonale Film Festival, as well as the esteemed Max Orfless Prize. But in an age of ever-shrinking tablet and phone screens and ever-growing cinema screens, is the art of creating costumes changing? Monocle's Alexei Korilov paid a visit to Monica's workshop in Vienna to find out. One of the sisters tries to commit suicide, mm. and there is the pathological uh, clinic mm-hmm. in Vienna, and we couldn't shoot there, so they built it. Now it's everything is wow. already taken. Yeah, <laughs> still impressive. Yeah. Monica Buttinger is always in high demand, and was once flown to Moscow in the dead of night just to oversee a fitting. She regularly travels to the US as well, but mostly works in Austria and Germany. We met just outside Vienna on the set of a new film called Der Boden unter den Füssen by the award-winning Austrian director Marie Kreutzer. A story of two estranged sisters, one a high-powered businesswoman, the other a troubled psychiatric hospital patient. You know, this surrounding of this executive consultants, it's kind of very simple. It's this very classic suit that shouldn't not look too expensive, closed not to show too much skin, like very neutral. This is the one world. Mm. And the other world, this clinic we are shooting or we have been shooting because we already did these scenes. We have been shooting in the Otto Wagner Spital. It's a very special place. And at least we got a kind of, uh, how can I say, optical present because patients... They have to wear a very special color, which is a kind of turquoise. We have been using this color like as a contrast to these dark colors, to the consultant's world, this dark gray, dark blue, black and white shirts and ties and so on. It's, I think, really interesting contrast. Yeah, well, we are now in the wardrobe truck. Are any of these costumes here? Yes. Some of them are up because we are... Of course, shooting also at the moment. This is one of the costumes from our main character, Lola. Uh-huh. Suit, tailored by Taylor from... She's always coming to Vienna because she's the best one, uh, especially for her. So this is Lola's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stuff of Connie, mm-hmm. her sister. So I have to find it. It's, ah, it's here. It's that... It's that color uh-huh. I have been talking about. It's very interesting that it's this uh, nice contrast to the, you know, this straight suity pieces and this very soft and, I don't know, washed for a thousand times jersey pieces. Yeah. Well, with the hospital clothes, you got lucky. But, yeah. I mean, how generally, how do you go about getting the clothes? You know, do you send people to stores to buy certain pieces or how does uh, this work? It always really depends on the issue of the film because it's very different if you make historical films, for example, or if you make contemporary films. First of all, I really have to make um, 
very intense recherche of in which world we are working and so on. And that means I think the first pieces I'm really going to get by myself and sometimes, you know, because I'm working very close with my assistant and so sometimes we we are going to shop together mm. or she's just getting things that I nearly exactly know what we need. And if you are working on historical films, I think most of my colleagues, we we really have to make sketches, design them, then try to get the materials. Sometimes you can find things at costume storages, like there are a few huge ones. One is in Vienna, and I think the biggest one is Conejo in Madrid, where they have thousands of costumes from really different periods. Yeah, so it might happen that, uh, you know, two films are interested in the same costume. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, it really happened. Like, there was this period... 500 years Martin Luther Mm -hmm. and so especially German speaking area there were a few productions like for this period 500 years ago so you you go to costume storages and then you see these three rails like with uh, big signs that it's all for another production and that might be stressing of course yes (laughs) (laughs) but then you know sometimes the clothes in a film can be so realistic that yeah. uh, the viewer can think that you know almost no effort has been put into that. But that's, of course, not true. No, because I think this is really a question of this feeling you get for the film. Sometimes the reality is much too strong for the film, for example. So I think that's what makes a good costume designer, that you really smell what feels realistic, what is too much... For example, like movie Revanche from Gott Spielmann. I was really proud of that because the costume is so, so basic that no one really would think about it. And I think that was my job in that film. And I think that really works. And if somebody would have been telling me after the film, you know, somebody that is not in the film business, oh, very beautiful costumes, I would feel that I have failed maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Do, do you feel any pressure on on yourself? You know, because you're a costume designer, that you yourself have <laughs> yeah. to look good and yeah. fashionable and so on, yeah. so that people can look up and say, "Well, yeah, she dresses really nicely." And do do you feel like that? Ever? It's a it's a. If I think it's a very interesting question. Yes, mm. I think that it makes a big difference, especially if I get to know an actress, an actor, if we meet the first time, and I think it's quite important that I'm I feel safe with me and myself and my clothes and mm. at least it's important for me I don't know how colleagues feel about that but for me it's very important yes you know I'm, I'm working all day with fashion with materials with good materials with bad it's it's an issue for me yes mm. have you ever failed do you think in this have you ever failed to make an impression on an actor or a director actually I don't think so <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so Or maybe, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Costume designer Monica Buttinger there speaking to Alexei Korilov in Vienna.
And that's all for this week's show. Next week, it's our 2017 finale. We'll look back at one of the stormiest years the entertainment industry has ever seen and look ahead to some of the films we'll be watching in 2018. Today's show was edited and mixed by Christy Evans and researched by Yulin Kofan. The Cinema Show is back next week. I'm Ben Ryland. Thank you for listening. <laughs>